This morning we're taking a break from our series in Revelation. I know you wanted me to preach on that, but there's no way I'm touching that. And uh, we're focusing instead on our New Testament reading from 1 John. If you have a Bible, please find it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It's very close to Revelation, just a few pages shy. Now, believe it or not, this short section of the Apostle John's first letter is one of the most influential passages in the New Testament. It's influential partly because of John's clarity. In verse 16, if you've found it, he sums up quite masterfully the triple threat of worldly temptations that we all face. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. The devil has always been sly. But thanks to John, to his keen insight and clarity, we can know what's coming. We can better brace ourselves for the devil's attacks. But this passage is influential also because of the serious questions it raises. John adamantly tells us not to love the world. And yet, in his gospel, in John 3.16, which we heard earlier this morning, he tells us that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son for its healing and renewal. So there's this obvious tension, right? To love or not to love? That is the question. And like I said, it's a serious question. Because we're not just trying to resolve a discrepancy. We're not just trying to reconcile two passages of Holy Scripture. We're talking about what our fundamental posture toward the world must be. We're talking about mission. We're talking about holiness. We're talking about what it means to live rightly as the people of God in the world. So serious questions abound. And this morning we're going to ask three of them. We're going to ask, what is the world? How does it tempt us? And how can we live in it? What is the world? How does it tempt us? How should we live in it? So let's listen for what God has to say to us in this passage with those three questions in mind. First, what is the world? John tells us in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, if we're not careful here, we'll end up doing exactly what John says, but completely missing his point. So let's be clear. John is not telling us to despise creation. In fact, one of the main reasons John wrote this letter was to rebuke people doing just that. John was responding more than likely to an emerging heresy called docetism. Flip over for a moment to the beginning of chapter 4. Here we get a sense of what exactly John was trying to sort out. Look with me starting at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
That is, um, a person claiming to have spiritual insight to share. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus, that he came in the flesh, is not from God. So, these docetists were denying that Jesus had a human body. They said he only seemed to have a body. That's where the docetists get their name from. The Greek word dokeo is the word for to seem. The docetists denied the basic goodness of creation. They thought that Christianity was a purely spiritual religion, a doctrinal religion, a big gigantic book club. And that the stuff of creation, that is our bodies and food and drink and sex, only keeps us, hinders us from fulfilling our true potential as spiritual and intellectual beings. That we're actually kind of trapped in this world, and redemption means us getting out, getting out of the body, getting out of the stuff. It's a heresy that's still kicking today. And the church responds to it by serving bread and wine every week and saying, this is Jesus' body and blood. It's this powerful reminder that God loves the world And that Christianity is rooted in the goodness of creation. So when John begins our passage with do not love the world or the things in the world, sounds pretty harsh, but he's not telling us to get away from, to use the technical word, stuff. We should love nature. Daffodils and chipmunks and sunsets and waves on the beach, if we didn't love that stuff, John would probably write us a letter too. And we should also love cultural products. John does not condemn our love for Japanese gardens and the Taj Mahal and novels like Moby Dick and the Goldberg variations. Even pop culture isn't necessarily specifically in John's sights. We are not necessarily loving the world if we love Coca-Cola and video games and Stranger Things and you too. None of this stuff is what John is talking about. Whenever John talks about the world in his gospel and in his letters, which we're looking at this morning, He's almost always referring to something more specific. He's almost always referring to humanity in rebellion against God. You see, for John, the world is under the dominion of Satan. He is the prince of this world. In chapter 5, verse 19, end of the book, John says this striking statement. He says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is the devil's domain. It is the sphere of his influence. And what's more, 
There's a war going on. This is what Aubrey talked about last week from the book of Revelation, also written by John. You see the theme. On the one side, there's the church. Those who have been born of God and who love the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And on the other side, there's the world. This inclusive term for all those who are in the kingdom of darkness and under the dominion of Satan. Every single person who is alive today or who has ever lived belongs to one or the other. To darkness or to light. To Satan or to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no caveat for indifference. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. So look, John is bold, right? Which is a bit surprising because one moment he's leaning his head very peaceably against the Lord Jesus' chest and calling the people he's writing to like my dear beloved sweet little children. And then the next moment he's like putting war paint on and storming the gates of hell with a water pistol as we said it in the Southern Baptist Church growing up. So, but all, you know, erratic behavior aside... We moderns need to learn something from John. And that is, there are things worth being bold about. And Christ and his kingdom are at the top of that list. We modern Christians can be such cowards. A few months ago, there was a picture in the New York Times of a Catholic cardinal grinning ear to ear, posing for a picture with a corrupt politician in the country. That's symptomatic of something wrong with our witness here. We in the West have tried so hard to confront the most sinister of evils with what one writer has called a gregarious good cheer. So we wine and dine, we schmooze, we wait it out, we tread ever so lightly in the name of love and humility. But at what point do we get bold? I don't mean mean. I don't mean disrespectful. I mean bold. Bold enough to say, that's wrong. Or that's unjust. That's evil. That's a blot on society. At what point do we realize that the claims of secularism in America, are just as threatening and just as religiously inspired as the claims of Islam in Sudan? At what point do we realize, with the Apostle John and with our Christian brothers and sisters all around the globe, that we are in fact in a spiritual war with a world that is in rebellion against God? Paul tells us this over and over again. We have no choice but to fight. Not with weapons, but with the truth and the courage and the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Because there's so much at stake. The whole world, remember, John said, is in the power of the evil one. He's deceived many already. And if we don't take him seriously, if we don't realize that we're in a war 
He'll deceive us too. How does he deceive us? That's our second question. How does the world tempt us? In what way does it launch its attack against us? Look with me now at verse 16. John says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. How does the world tempt us? By appealing to our inmost desires. Our culture thrives on appealing to our desires. It says all our desires are good and therefore should be acted on. It seems that the only remaining sin sometimes in our culture is to not act on your desires. Is to act differently from them. Or to suppress them or to deny them. Because then, oh no, you might not be acting like your authentic self. Your true self. So, hungry? Why wait? Grab a Snickers. You're so worldly. (laughs) See? So, desires are good. God created and gave us desires. And he gave us a world, this amazing, beautiful playground that's in full effect right now in the springtime here in the valley, where our desires could be fulfilled. But the problem, John says, is that our desires have been hijacked. They're part of the world now. They're no longer from the Father, but from the world. You see, in the biblical worldview, evil is everywhere. It's pervasive. Like the presence of bacteria on an airplane. Nothing is immune. Do not touch that tray. The good things of God's creation have been contaminated by evil forces. When we make good things into God things, when we make wonderful things into ultimate things, When we give all our allegiance to something other than God and build our our whole lives around that, whether that's money or food or entertainment or pleasure, we give power to the evil forces that inhabit those things. And when we give power to those forces, we become enslaved by them. So it's almost like the things you love in this world have the capacity to develop a dark kind of personality on their own, like a spirit. They start sucking you, these evil forces, into their grip like a black hole. They start sucking you into their vileness, drawing you away from God and into deeper and darker and more distorted varieties of evil. Is this not the pornography industry? Until you become so unlike the glorious being God created you to be. That you almost cease to be human. That's the biblical worldview. That's John's worldview. And look, it feels weird for me to say this stuff. Because I'm a tried and true modern American. I'm a Westerner. This worldview doesn't come naturally to me at all. But 
the Bible tells me it's true. And when I look at world history and all the horrendous evil that happened over the centuries, the Hitlers, the Maos, the Herods, I know this is true. Someone says the best apologetic for God and the existence of morality is the 20th century. And when I look at my own life and the disturbing power that these evil forces can have on my choices, the desires of the flesh for ever-increasing pleasure, the desires of the eyes, my greed for more money and, and finer food and a cooler house, and pride of life, this, this craving to be the best or the most unique or to somehow achieve my own celebrity status. I know that this biblical worldview is true. And my guess is that you can too. St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said that every sin we commit stems from these three temptations. So think about the first sin in the garden. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable for wisdom. These are all good things. These are good desires. But what had happened? Satan had twisted them. He distorted them. So the fruit was healthy and ripe. And by golly, Eve deserved the best. The fruit looked good. And just think about how good Eve would have looked eating it. That's the appeal. The fruit would give her wisdom. And then she could be a god to herself. You see, the world appeals to our God-given gut-level instincts. But it twists them. So we desire food, but it's got to be the best. We desire sex, but it must be with whom we want it, how we want it, and when we want it. We desire health, but if it doesn't end in a six-pack, count me out. We desire relationship, but really, sometimes we just want somebody to be obsessed with us and do our bidding. We desire success, not so much to get the job done well, but to be seen as the best. So, in other words, we must eat like a God, have the sex life of a God, look like a God, be served as a God, and be praised as a God. We must be God. You see how our desires, our good desires, have been co-opted. You see how for all the virtue of being true to yourself, there was a massive element of deception in that slogan. Don't you see how evil has crept in and persuaded an entire culture, an entire history, to fight for the wrong team? The world is in rebellion against God. And whether we admit it or not, whether we've been conscious of it or not, We've been co-conspirators. And yet, and yet, this sinful world ruled by Satan 
is nevertheless the object of God's love. Not, of course, that God condones its materialism and sin, but his compassion embraces the poor creatures the devil has enthralled. This world that we've been talking about, it's the world that God loves. Is that not amazing? It's, the, it's this love that I find almost incomprehensible. This is the world God aches for and yearns to put aright. This is the world God sent his son to die for. This is the world God looks at, squints really narrow and says, ah, there it is. There's the creation I intended. I can see it and I can fix this. And so here's the good news. God has done just that. John says in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. This is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the world as we know it is utterly doomed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. Evil has been put to flight. Its time is short. And a new creation, a new world is already dawning. It's, it's the world that looks like the one God had in mind from the beginning. And so how do we live in this world? How should we live? How do we who have received God's love and begun to experience his healing and renewal, what should be our posture posture, to the world around us? Remember the words of our Lord Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light shine. Despite having moments of darkness ourselves, you and I are the light of the world. We are God's light in a kingdom of darkness, behind enemy lines. And what does light do? Two things. First, light lets the good be seen. Believe it or not, the church is profoundly for the world, pro-world. It's our home. We love the world. So our relationship with something even like culture should be fundamentally positive. We're part of it and we identify with it. And so we seek to love and cherish all of its created goodness. When we see glimpses of God's beauty, his design in the created order, however flawed, you and I, the church, should be the first ones to point it out and hold it up and say, look at this. Um, I spent last week in England with Craig Bartholomew. Craig, if you don't know, is um, a theologian and author and a good friend of our church. Craig is a cultural critic, which means he, he, you know, he, he's thinking deeply, pretty constantly about culture. But one of the things that amazed me was Craig's ability to always stop and see and notice the beauty around him. Never have I met someone so distracted by birdsong. 
I'll be in mid-sentence, and he'll say, oh, there's my bird. And he'll just listen and completely shut me out. We'll just be watching this bird. Um, or one night, we're listening to music, and the, and the song comes on, Beyonce's song, Listen. And if it, it was as, just, as if the world just stopped. Uh, Beyonce, of all people, we, days later in the house, we'd be studying and it'd be quiet and you would just hear Craig go, listen. <laughs> so Craig just marveled at the genius of this melody and the power and beauty of the lyrics because it's there. It's totally there. And here's the thing about spending time with somebody like that. They start to rub off on you. Suddenly, you begin to think, wow. The world really is good. Like that bird song is beautiful. I can totally see why God loves the world. I want to love the world too. I want to see it through these lenses. This is a Christian worldview. It's not worldly. So that's the first thing. We're the light of the world and light lets the good be seen. Second, light exposes the flaws. Church isn't just for the world. It's also against it. It's against all the ways that the good is spoiled. So the, the light doesn't lie. The light doesn't overlook. It exposes the underlying desires of the things that we often take at face value. Even cultural products that are good or innocuous in themselves can, can have this effect of shaping our desires in perverse directions. Communication technologies affect the way we experience communication. It affects interpersonal relationships. They transform our expectations about time. They sometimes encourage impatience and a desire for immediate results. Cars are a great blessing, but... Think of the way the invention of the automobile has permitted us, and particularly young people, a freedom that's never been had. Technologies make new things possible. But we need to ask whether all the new things made possible are things that we should desire to begin with. So youth, ask yourself, when you pick out a film or watch your favorite TV show or sit down to, to play a video game or, or decide whether or not to buy an iPhone, why do I want this? Why do I want to listen to this particular song? What kind of desires is it awakening in me? Ask yourself whether those desires are encouraging and fostering a deeper relationship with God. So before you go pick up the next video or listen to the next song, before you choose how you're going to spend Friday night, ask whether the choice encourages these desires or the desires that come from the world. Don't be blind. Don't be deceived. Be the light. The church is for the world and against it. Just like God is. And we see God's posture toward the world on full display at the cross. The cross 
was God's ultimate expression of his love for the world. There's a translation of John 3.16 that says, instead of saying, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, it says, this is how God loved the world, colon, he sent his only son to die. That changes things, doesn't it? The cross was an act of solidarity with the corrupt and suffering world that God loved and came to save. But the cross was also the ultimate expression of God's judgment against the sin and idolatry of the world. His utter rejection of all that seeks to destroy the peace and the goodness of creation. And now God has called us to live in that same tension. To not love the world, but also to give ourselves constantly up for its healing and renewal. One day the world will be new, and we'll be new with it. But until then, we are the light. We are the light, showing off the good and exposing the flaws and loving the God who promises to finish what he started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.